0: I invite you to take your copy of, your, of the Word of God and turn with us to 1 Peter. As you know, we are continuing on in our exposition of this letter. I think we have all found our time in here to be challenging and encouraging and giving us something to set our eyes and our hearts upon. As you turn there, sort of by way of introduction, something to think about as we look at our text, how do you encourage people? More importantly, what do you do when you need some encouragement or motivation? Perhaps you listen to a certain kind of music, or drink a Red Bull, or a coffee, But everyone has some way of stirring up some motivation within themselves. But what about in the midst of terrible tragedy? What about as you look around our world today, right now, and the future looks bleak? What would the elect exiles and the dispersion to whom Peter has been writing What would they most need to hear to set their hearts aflame as they endure suffering and persecution? The answer is not in motivational quotes, believe it or not, or rah-rah speeches, or anything else like that. The answer, as we will see in our text today, is actually to take your eyes off of yourself. Many times when we try to encourage and motivate people, what do we say? You can do it. You, you, you. And why those inevitably end up failing to actually encourage and motivate us is because we look within ourselves and we see, no, I can't. I'm very weak right now. I am broken. I am brokenhearted. I am hurting. I don't have it within me Often, that is not encouraging or motivating at all. But what is, is to look to the perfect, finished victory of Christ Jesus. That is the title of our sermon today. It is the victory of Christ. In our text this morning, we will see Peter reminding the believers of the victory of Christ. So that they can set their minds on these truths, to find motivation and encouragement to endure all that God has ordained for them. With that in mind, I hope you're there by now. Turn, uh, let's stand together as we read First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. This is the word of the living God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous. now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, the one true God, Yahweh. We bless your name this morning. We thank you for bringing us to this place, for giving us your word that we can open it, giving us the spirit that we can understand it. And I pray that by the spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, those who are far from you, that they would be brought near those who are near to you, that they'd be reminded that they've been brought near because of the blood of Christ. Help us to see and to find the encouragement and motivation in the ultimate conquest, our conquering King, Jesus Christ, so that we can leave here ready and prepared for whatever life has for us. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to begin this morning with our first major heading by looking at the suffering of Christ. Verse 18 is what we're going to focus on. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's remember where we are in this letter. Last week, we looked at verses 13 through 17, and it was all about suffering for the sake of righteousness. What we saw there was that it is entirely possible in this fallen world that we live in to suffer for the sake of righteousness, for being zealous for righteousness. And since it is entirely possible and God's will for us, Peter goes as far as reminding us actually that it might be God's will for you. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for you. Then we must persevere through that suffering in a manner consistent with what God has called us to do. But that is Indeed, difficult, isn't it? But we're not to think of the command from chapter 1, where Peter said, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're not to think that that command is now null and void because we are enduring persecution or any other form of suffering. When we are reviled, we are not to revile. How is it that we can conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile? When you're reviled, do not revile in return. When you are slandered, don't slander in return. Our God is still every bit as concerned with you living holy, even in the midst of suffering, trials, and persecution. Our difficult circumstances do not give us a free hall pass to now live in this in-between sort of way where God's not really looking at me for being unholy or sinful because He knows I'm having a hard time. He is expecting you still to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that means even when bad things are happening. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. God's will. God's will for your life might very well be, and if you are a Christian, to some extent it is your will, it is God's will for you, that you would suffer for the sake of righteousness. Surely this would make the believers in Peter's time, and perhaps you in here today, begin to feel like all this talk of suffering is ultimately just discouraging. How many times are we going to open up 1 Peter and talk about suffering? Well, apparently a lot. It is a theme consistent and constant all throughout this letter, and that's for a very good purpose. That could certainly be the thought process in their minds, or again, as I said, in your mind, and that's why Peter opens up verse 18 with a three-letter word, "for." It's a little conjunction that connects the previous section with this current section. In other words, they are related to one another. They're not entirely two different thoughts. They, belong to be, they need to be looked at together. As we read, he's about to deal with the suffering of Christ. So he just said that you might be reviled, don't revile in return. It might be God's will for you to suffer, and it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. And then now he turns to Christ for encouragement and motivation. And in a sense, this, is, this might sound really familiar or like he's repeating himself, because back in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter wrote that we've been called to graciously and righteously endure suffering because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. But that's the difference between the section in chapter 2 when he referred to Christ and this section is that back then he was trying to set Christ forth as an example of what it looks like to righteously and graciously endure suffering but now he is setting forth the suffering of Christ as an encouragement for the believers. Now, how is that? What could ever be encouraging about suffering? What could possibly be encouraging about suffering? Well, Peter looks, gives us three facets of Christ's suffering. Let's look at them. Three facets of Christ's suffering. First is the reason. For his suffering. For Christ also suffered once, why? For sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered once for sins. Not his own sins, of course, because he didn't have any. But let's not just assume that fact, but let's derive it from the text. How do we get there? How do we understand that? Well, Peter writes that it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, obviously, is the righteous. And guess who the unrighteous is? Anyone? That would be us. Gold star for all of you who are paying attention. Christ, the righteous, suffered for the sins of the unrighteous. The most lopsided, even unfair trade in all of history. The perfect, sinless, precious Son of God suffered for our sins. If we truly grasped this, beloved, we would never again worry. We'd never again fret. We'd never again complain. We'd never grow weary. We'd certainly never again live with sinful doubt or anxiety. Why? Because Christ suffered for your sins. What more could there be to ask for? Do you understand if if Christ was given to suffer for your sins, and then God saw it fit for you to spend the rest of your life in persecution, living in a box, estranged from your family, He would still have given you more than you could possibly ever deserve. Do we believe that way? Do we think that way? If we did, if we would truly grasp the severity of his suffering because of the vile nature, listen, of your iniquity, the total ruin brought about by your personal transgressions contrasted with The absolute perfection, the immeasurable worth, the all-surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ suffering for righteousness would be a task that you would sign up for in a heartbeat. You would say, put my name at the top of the list. Because of what Christ has done for me, you stood condemned. You were abiding under the wrath of God. Do you understand? God was furiously angry with you in your fallen, sinful state. Angry with you. But for the sake of bringing glory to His own name, He chose to show you mercy and demonstrate the greatest act of love by covenanting with His Son in eternity past that He would come and die a substitutionary death for you. The Father looked at you in your sin and His eyes were filled with anger and wrath. The Father looked at His Son and His eyes were filled with love. The son came and bore your sin. The father looked at his son on the cross and his eyes were now filled with anger as he poured the cup of wrath that had your name on it, on his own precious son. That is life-changing. Now, when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, father looks at you and he sees his own son. He sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness, not yours. He sees Christ's perfect, passive, and active obedience, not your lifelong history of disobeying the Lord's commands. He's no longer moved to judge you, but to love you. This is, after all, the result of his suffering, which is the second facet of Christ's suffering. He says he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Remember that you were at that time, before salvation, separated from Christ, alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near, not by your good works, not by anything you have ever done in your life, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ's suffering once for sins resulted in you being justified in the eyes of the Father and being brought near to Him. He has reconciled you to Himself by His blood on the cross. Notice, you don't bring yourself near to God. You don't do it. Christ did it. You can't. You'll die trying. You who trust in your own self-righteousness to stand justified before the Lord God Almighty, you will fail epically and miserably. But there's a better way. There's a sure way. It is by repenting, fleeing from your sin, and turning to Christ. Have you been brought to God this morning. You might sit there and say, well, I'm not quite sure. My friend... Would anyone say that of the sun or of the ocean? If you were to be brought nearer to the sun, I mean the sun in the sky, you would disintegrate before you could tell anyone that, yes, you have been brought near to the sun. If you've been brought near to the ocean, you'd readily recount the beauty of standing at the shoreline of something so beautiful and immense Dare we think we could be brought to God and not know it? Absolutely not. If you'd say, well, I don't know, ask yourself, have I been changed from the inside out kind of way? Have I, been, have I seen the beauty of Christ so that I cannot stop speaking of it? Does it consume me? Do I wake at midnight to praise God Christ, this after all, my friend, listen, it is the result of his suffering to the effect that if it has not happened to you, his suffering has not been applied to you. You have not trusted in his suffering. You are still continuing even now at church this morning at 1105, trusting in your own self-righteousness. But if you would today flee to him, you would be brought near. Today, right now. What an undeserved privilege and honor. All brought about by the third reason for the third facet, the nature of his suffering, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The suffering of Christ wasn't only mocking. It wasn't only the slander, it wasn't only the reviling, it wasn't only the excruciating pain, it wasn't only the lashes on his back, it wasn't only his, the nails in his hand, it wasn't only his disciples abandoning him, it was his death. He died that ought to shake you and rock you to the core of who you are. Christ Jesus, the Word become flesh, died for you. This isn't just something to talk about with non-believers or new believers. It's not just for a new believers class. Well, pastor, I've, I've been in church for 40 years. I already know about this stuff. Tell me something else. Then you don't truly know. You haven't experienced the suffering applied to you. You have not trusted in his death. Because if you have, you never tire of hearing of it. Tell me more of what Christ has done that I could never do for myself. Don't you see? Peter is writing this as an encouragement for the believers in the dispersion who are suffering persecution. He's not saying, boy, you can do it. You can go get him. What does he say? Look at Jesus. Look at what Christ has done for you. Christ has bled. Christ has suffered. Christ has died. Are you suffering this morning? Are you in some sort of trial? Are you having a hard time? Anxious, depressed, struggling? Here is a truth for you to cherish in your heart. Christ died for you. Christ died died for you to sum up these three reasons, these three facets from which we can draw encouragement from the suffering of Christ. No one probably stated it better, more plainly and succinctly than Charles Spurgeon. Quote, "'Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you.'" End quote. "'Why are you anxious?' Why are you worried? Why are you scared? Why are you fearful? Why do you run in dread? You cost Christ too much for him to forget you. He gave his life. Do You think he now turns his back and says, well, I have no idea where you went. No, you've been brought near to God. You are right there. As these elect exiles walk through various forms of persecution, as they are grieved by various trials, they must remember that Christ laid down his most precious life, his righteous life, in exchange for their unrighteous life. This is diamonds in exchange for dirt. You too, you too this morning, as you endure any manner of suffering the Lord wills into your life, look to Christ who suffered for sins and was put to death in the flesh. But all of this would be for naught if he were still in the grave, wouldn't it? I spoke with a man this week who spoke of having gone to the Middle East and said he saw where Christ is buried. And I said, my friend, do you mean to tell me you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? His actual answer, nah. But our text clearly says that He was made alive in the Spirit. He is alive today. His tomb is empty. You cannot go dig up Jesus Christ because He reigns supreme in the heavens. But now let's turn and look at the proclamation of Christ. Let's look at verse 19 through 20, the first part of verse 20 in which, that is, in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. We're now going to look at a section of Scripture that is greatly debated. I will preface by saying it is a bit ambiguous. And many scholars, many men much smarter than I, have varying ways of interpreting what Peter is saying. I love what Martin Luther said about this text, though. He said, quote, "...a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means." Well, that's great. Martin Luther, the reformer, I'm not really sure what Peter's talking about here. But I think through careful examination, we can arrive at least at a pretty safe understanding of the text, certainly so that we can draw from it the divinely intended point. There are three primary views of this text, and I'm going to leave it up to you to go research the other views in your own time. For our purposes, so that we aren't here for five hours, I think it's best to just focus on the conclusion that I've arrived at. We have to take a second to look back at Peter's statement that we just read. And that was that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I believe the most accurate way to understand this is that Peter was speaking to two different realms or spheres. He was put to death in the flesh, in a bodily sense. But he was not put to death. His spirit didn't die. He can't cease to exist. He's God. So he was alive in the spiritual sense. He was put to death in the physical, physical realm that you and I can see, but alive in the spiritual realm. Why do I think that? Because then Peter next says, "...in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits." He's talking about the spiritual realm. This is something that you and I cannot see. In which? In the spirit. In the spirit realm. Catholics use this as a way of speaking about purgatory. That Christ went to preach the gospel to those in purgatory in hopes that they'll believe and be purified in purgatory. Let me state it very plainly. Rest very assured that that is absolutely false. There is no such thing. No, Peter is writing that Christ went to a place in the spirit realm. In the spirit realm, there is a prison for spirits. And the word here for spirits is pneuma. It's almost always used in conjunction with spirits that are not human. You and I have a spirit, but then there are also spirits that are angelic beings. The Holy Spirit, for example. We know from the context that these are clearly evil spirits that he's referring to, or as we commonly would call them, demons. Because Peter writes that they formally did not obey. You saw that at the beginning of verse 20. They formally did not obey. As you know, God's holy angels They are not going to disobey. They execute God's will. They don't mess up from time to time and need to go sit a time out in prison. God's holy angels are holy. Demons, on the other hand, all they do is disobey. So then, why are some demons in prison and not others? If there's a prison for demons, it seems like a great place to keep them, doesn't it? Here, Peter is saying that there are spirits who we've identified as demons who did not obey, which no demons obey, in prison. So why aren't all the demons in this prison? Well, let's first deal with why these particular demons are there. Remember, Peter is saying that these spirits did not obey, and he identified that these spirits specifically did not obey at a particular time. Look at the text. He says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There is a particular something that took place at the time of Noah. So what was happening during the time of Noah? Well, you can turn there if you would like, but in Genesis chapter 6, we find the account of what's transpiring. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, listen, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, the Nephilim rather, were on the earth. In those days, and also afterward, who are these people? They were there when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Wow. What's going on there? Some of you have studied this. Maybe for others, this is your first time hearing it, but these sons of God, most likely, were fallen angels. You know that when Lucifer fell from heaven, he took with him a third of the angels. These angels fell from heaven. They saw the daughters of man, human women, and they cohabitated with them. That means they had children. Most likely, that is where the reference of the Nephilim comes from. These mighty men of old, men of, men of renown. It's a word that can also be translated as giants. And it's only used in one other place, Numbers thirteen thirty-three, And there it's clearly referring to giants. If they taint the lines of humanity, listen, these fallen angels by cohabitating with women, if they taint the lines of humanity, eventually all of humanity will become unredeemable as they literally are spawns of demons. Therefore, what God said in Genesis 3 could never happen, could it? Jude 6 tells us, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These are the spirits in this prison that Christ went and proclaimed to. But then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Do you see what's happening? There are these particular demons that were cast into this prison of gloomy darkness to be kept there until the day of judgment because of the specific sin they committed, which was leaving their proper abode and cohabitating with the daughters of men. Women, human, women. Again, if they taint the lines of humanity, Eventually, all humanity will become unredeemable as they will all be spawns of demons. These demons were cast into a prison where they are being held until the final day of judgment. So, imagine then, when they saw that Jesus was being killed, surely these demons who are being caught, kept in prison, surely they think we won. Surely they're thinking. Satan has done it. He has stopped the seed of the woman that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 3 that was going to crush his head. Surely, he's done it. And we are now going to be freed. They they must have thought they were victorious. They must have thought that they had defeated The prince of glory. But when the prison door swung open. It was not Satan. Who was it? It was the king of kings. Jesus Christ coming to proclaim his victory over them. What a scene this is. They might have thought they had defeated him. But little did they know that they were being handed the most ultimate sound defeat in all of history. Colossians 2.15 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. He made a complete mockery of the futile attempts of the powers of darkness to defeat him, didn't he? They threw everything they had at him. They killed him. They had to think that they won. And now here he is to proclaim his triumph over them and to put them to open shame. What was Christ there to proclaim? Victory, not defeat, victory. You see, this is an absolute comfort to put your mind there that Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. They were already imprisoned. But there they were, hoping against hope that they would be freed. Christ won. He was victorious once for all in this suffering, in this dark, gloomy scene of verse 18, of His suffering for sins, of the righteous being traded for the unrighteous, and being put to death in the flesh. This gloomy scene is now contrasted with Christ proclaiming victory over the powers of evil. I will ask again, why then, if you're a child of God, do you have a reason to worry? You see, these elect exiles in the dispersion are being told this, not so that they just have some trivia knowledge. They're being told this so that they can remember, oh yeah, these people that are persecuting us, they're, they're causing us to suffer, they're, they're, they're reviling us, they're slandering us, they lose. They've been defeated. So even if we go our whole life long suffering, if God sees that fit to bring it upon us, we ultimately win. And that's what Christ was there to proclaim is His victory. No harm can befall you that will end in your ultimate demise as a child of God, because Christ has won. Next is the salvation through Christ. The second half of verse 20 and 21 says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said a bit ago, those evil spirits were procreating with women and spawning a whole race of unredeemable people, which it seems like they were well on their way to doing because God, in Genesis 6-5, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what happens when you have spawns of demons on this earth. So what did he do? He destroyed all of the earth and only kept eight people. That is a staggeringly small number, isn't it? Eight people in all of the earth were saved. God destroyed the whole earth because of the rampant wickedness that was pervading the planet. But what does all of this have to do with the greater message of 1 Peter? Cuz let's be honest, it seems like a detour that Peter takes here. This is such it, it, some people have asked, some scholars and commentators wonder if this was not actually a part of the originally what Peter had written, which is not true, of course, for many reasons. But what does this have to do? What, what is this account of Noah? Why does that offer any encouragement or comfort to the believers? Why should you today take comfort and encouragement from this? Well, in Second Peter, he still has the days of Noah on his mind. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment did you catch that all of these serve as examples of god knowing how to rescue the godly from trials while simultaneously keeping the righteous under unrighteous under punishment Peter makes a point to point out that there were only eight people saved in all of the earth on the ark. That's eight people. That's one more than seven. Eight people, folks. Eight people in all of the earth were saved. Who knows how many people were here, but it was certainly far more than just eight. And God was able to preserve the very small minority while He literally rain down judgment on the wicked. So these sojourners then, though they are small in number, they can know that God is able to preserve His people even though they're the minority in the land, even though they are small in number, and even though they feel insignificant, and everyone snickers and laughs at them and derides them because of the lifestyle that they are living in pursuit of holiness, Even though all of that is true, God is able to preserve the godly while keeping the ungodly under judgment. That is remarkable. This is further encouragement to this already faith strengthening passage. Christ has suffered once for my sins. His righteousness is imputed to me. His death has, been, has brought us to God. He has resurrected. He has proclaimed His victory over demonic powers. And now we see examples of when God has protected His people throughout the ages. This is soul-stirring. In His example of salvation, demonst- uh, demonstrated in Noah and his family on the ark being saved through water, Peter now connects this to baptism. What in the world does this have to do? What is Peter doing? He's talking about all kinds of things. He tells us that baptism corresponds to, or is a type or antitype of, Noah and his family being saved as they were brought safely through water. Peter, of course, contrary to the Church of Christ doctrine, does not mean that baptism actually saves you in the sense that it regenerates you. They believe in baptismal regeneration, so that if you're not baptized, you're not even saved. That's not what Peter is saying, is it? We know as products of the Protestant Reformation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Alone. So then what does Peter mean? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not the act of baptism itself, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And here's the main part. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus that saves us. Faith in the perfect work of Christ Jesus. When Christ was resurrected, it was God the Father vindicating Him and authenticating His work. He was proven to be the Son of God in power. Baptism, then, is a symbol. It is an ordinance of the church whereby we are identifying with Christ in a burial like his, so that we can be raised with him in a resurrection like his. You go down into the waters, signifying burial, and you're raised out of the waters, signifying the resurrection to the newness of life. It is all hingent upon, though, faith in the finished work of Christ, as authenticated by his resurrection from the dead. He came to life so that the dead in sin can come to life. Remember, though, only eight were saved in the flood. For 120 years, the doors of the ark were open. For 120 years, as MacArthur puts it, the ark preached a sermon. A sermon about impending judgment but the opportunity to trust in God and be saved. But this was impending judgment the likes of which has never been seen. Judgment because of God's profound hatred for sin and man's profound love for sin. For 120 years, there was an opportunity to repent. Note what it says, when God's patience waited. But one day, time ran out the door closed the rain fell the waters rose the earth was judged sinners died what about you this morning have you been hearing sermons about the coming judgment it's hard for you to even believe it things are going pretty good for me i got time i'll turn when i'm older I'll wait until my deathbed. You look at the proverbial ark and you scoff. Jesus said in the days of Noah that people went on eating and drinking, and taking in marriage all the way up until the door closed. They didn't know when the door would close, but they had every opportunity to get on the ark. What about you? Jesus said, you don't know the day or the hour. James said, your life is but a vapor. It's a mist that's here one day and it vanishes the next. You don't know when the time will run out and judgment will fall, but you do know that right now you're alive. God has shown you, even up to this moment, an unbelievable, undeserved kindness in waking you up, in bringing you here. And Scripture tells us that that kindness of God is meant to lead You to repentance. It was only the ones on the ark who were saved. Everyone had 120 years. Only eight of them were saved. The wonderful thing about the truth is that you know what? One day we're going to find out. People were scoffing and laughing at Noah and going on about their life. But one day the rain fell and Noah was vindicated in his trusting in God. And so it is with the unbelieving today. They might scoff at you. might laugh. Perhaps you are in unbelief today and you scoff and you laugh. But one day we'll find out. And on that day, I hope that what you find is that you trusted in Jesus so that you are vindicated. Last, it's the supremacy of Christ. We would be remiss, though the hour is late, to just gloss over this verse. Let's read it. Speaking of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The text reaches its climax with the main point of Peter writing all of this in these five verses. That Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected on the third day He appeared to more than 500 at once. He spent 40 days speaking of the kingdom of God and he then went up into heaven where he is seated right now at the right hand of God. The right hand is the place of highest honor. The reference to angels, authorities, and powers is a restatement of the spirits referred to earlier but in a much fuller way. It wasn't just the spirits in prison that he triumphed over or that are now subjected to him. It is all powers, all angels, all authorities, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus Christ reigns supreme in all of his victorious glory. One more time, then believer, What do you have to ever worry about? But I mean, really, if you're thinking about this text and thinking about the victory that Christ has secured by his death, burial, and resurrection, why are you afraid? What are you worried about? Why are you anxious? Why do you want to exact your own vengeance upon your enemies? Christ's victory is much better than ours. Christ's way of winning is far superior than ours. You need not concern yourself with winning arguments or winning conversations or your your thing being said last or your point being made or any of those things. You don't even have to worry about you winning the battle that you're currently facing. You know why? Because you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus already. That means now, not eventually, right now. The problem is that you and I need to fix our focus and our faith. That our focus would be in what our faith is in, and that is in Christ Jesus and his perfect finished work. That is encouraging. I don't know about you, but this is soul stirring that was all of peter's point to paint a portrait so beautiful and so heart-stirring that these elect exiles and by extension all of us who believe would be encouraged and even motivated to press on in the middle of trials, tragedies, suffering and persecution. Christ suffered for your sins. But not only that his sacrifice, not only that his sacrifice was so sufficient that he only had to do it once. He died He was resurrected. He has brought us near to God. He proclaimed his victory. His salvation is made available. And his reign is supreme. This is the victory of Christ. Let's stand. As is our custom, we'll sing a song together. I believe Michael and Kaylee are going to lead us in song. We will pray, we will sing and rejoice in the victory of Christ and go about our day. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your most precious word. We thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that as your word has gone forth now, I pray that your spirit stirs us up to good works. I pray that your spirit stirs us up for zeal for the glory of the Lord. I pray that your spirit helps us to focus on the victory of Christ and not in all the ways that we feel like we're losing, but on the one ultimate way that Christ has already won. Help us, Lord, to do this by your power, for your glory, and for the good of your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.